0: Amen, man. I hope y'all had a good day. It's uh, if you got kids back home, then you had a good day. <laughs> Where was I? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that's not that's not that, like being an ungrateful parent. You need a break, man. Once in a while, you got to have it, and uh, it's good. So good, man. Just makes those plush four-inch foam mattresses so joyous. I know you, our accommodations here, for those of you that are staying on campus, you're welcome. <laughs> I tell you, man, uh, the, board, the board of directors that oversees this ministry always wants me to, when we have adult retreats, give folks updates. And, and I'm like, man, snowbird draws poor people. They no rich people coming to Snowberg gonna give us money. They're like, tell them anyway. And uh, but I do like to tell people what's going on. Uh, and uh, uh, some of you are here in the fall. And um, you know, we've been in like a five-year process of trying to expand our 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 ministry numerically. We could we could really grow when it comes to students, but we've just run into infrastructure issues primarily. Um, like, if you talk to any of these military veterans, they'll tell you, like, when you go in and establish a forward operating base, you've got to figure out where you're going to put wastewater. Like, <laughs> like, how am I going to feed these people? And then what am I going to do with the food after they're done with it? You know, like, that's kind of how, that's like 101 for any kind So we, like, it's been a big thing here, a big ordeal where the town of Andrews, which is real close to here, has agreed to let us tie into their septic, their, their city septic or sewer. It was a big project. Like going involves going down the right right away, right down the main road, all the way over a mile to town, and and a lot of money, a lot of money, and uh, it's just cool, man. That God's still in control of kings and emperors and governors and state. of North Carolina's given us four hundred thousand dollars in grant money to do this, and that's like the the schools in this community call us when they need when they need some they call us they're like hey we got a kid we got a family we got a situation we got an issue it's the favor of the lord you know that, so i don't buy the idea that we live in a time where the church is being silenced i think you know it, it's it's harder and it's more difficult but if if the church will do if we'll do what god's called us to do and do it with diligence and vigilance god will give us favor and open doors and he's done that here and, so that was pretty cool, $400,000 from the state. We had, we had been really good. We have really good people in the right positions in this ministry that, that are, are careful with money and save money. We charge students to come to camp here, but you guys, if you know us, you know our policy is no kid gets turned away, so we give away a lot of scholarships each year for kids to be able to come. And, um, but the Lord's put good stewards in charge. For a long time, me and my father-in-law in, were in charge. And we're not good stewards. Um, I don't, like, I don't, I don't spend money I don't have. I'm just like, you know, shiny stuff is appealing and get <laughs> sidetracked, you know. Like, So people stay on point, you know, stay on task. And so we we're able to spend several years saving money. And anyway, it's, it's, it's close to a million-dollar project and the funding's in place. And so that's just a huge blessing. So that project is underway. And... uh what that'll enable us to do is just grow. It'll help us grow. And growth means more teenagers hear the gospel. More teenagers tell us their story of abuse. More teenagers tell us their story of, of uh, early addiction. Uh, more teenagers meet Jesus, are saved, and called to the mission field. More young people understand a clear picture of the fatherhood of God because they have such a distorted view. So if, we, if, if it's good to have 11,000 teenagers come through here in a year, we think it's better to have 22,000 teenagers come through here in a year. So that's, that's what we're shooting for. We've got to expand. So the next thing on the list will be this building that we're in. You can imagine. I mean, there's about 100, 120 people in this building right now. You might, or probably more like 100 right now. So you can imagine slamming about trying to get 500 people in here plus 150 staff. You just, we can't do it. So we end up having to be creative so like this summer, we're having a separate group, so we have the main worship service going on here and a, and a second service going on. We'll convert the dining hall into a seating area, pull tables up, convert it. So like like one session, we'll have middle schoolers down there. Another session, we'll pull the guys down there. Another session, we'll pull high school seniors down there, up-and-coming high school freshmen and, and, and tackle different issues with them, just to try to create space in here. So we have... Uh, we we've, we've got a firm, an architect that has designed a building that'll seat about a thousand people, give or take, about a thousand people, and we'll meet our needs for a long, long time. And uh, so anyway, it's exciting. But we, if you know anybody that's got like a million bucks, let us know. And <laughs> if I got a hundred bucks, let us know. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, but. We got this one guy that was on our board for a long time. He's not on our board anymore, but he's still very strong supporter of this ministry, just like family. Many of you have heard him. Uh, he's, he and his wife, John and Spicy, right now, they spoke um, They spoke at one of the marriage conferences. Phenomenal people. They, they spend half their time. They spend the warmer months here, and then they go to Florida. When, it, when it's cold, you know, and so they're getting ready to come back here for the season, but John's always saying, oh, just once we got our ducks in a row, we can raise a million bucks like that. I'm like, dude, I cannot wait to see that happen. I'm, I believe you. I'm trusting you, and uh, so it'll be cool, but anyway, when that happens, one of the, one of the just, you ever just dream and think, like dream, should dream, you should have dreams, and and uh, dream about like, Hotel-style hotel, hotel style accommodations and, and cabins for married couples to stay in, you know. It would be just great to say, hey, here's a couple, there's your room. You know, you got a room and you don't have to, a lot of you are staying off campus and you have to, which is great, but anyway, exciting times at Snowbird Outfitters. 22 years, about 120,000 students by the end of this next cycle. This is what we'll have seen come through here. That's crazy, isn't it? 120,000 people. Imagine, oh, I just always think, man, I wish I would have, gone to a place like this when i was about 15 maybe i would have been less of a knucklehead i'd have still been a knucklehead but less of a knucklehead and uh that's good so and this has been a fun retreat man it's something i don't know what it is it's just like a a chill tone to this retreat we're calm laid back it's been good smaller crowd maybe that's part of it spring of the year we're getting ready to ramp up into our crazy season y'all should come y'all ought to just come here and see this place in the summer, it's nuts, it's buck wild, you can't even, you will definitely want to stay off campus In you do not want to be here, It's people, we're trying to keep people from lighting stuff on fire, and procreate, you know, like, like, like and just give them Jesus, right, like, it's, it is a balancing act, man, it's like, um, but it is glorious to watch God move in the lives of young people, watch them get excited, a lot of you, your kids have come here, and uh, maybe a lot of you are we got former staff members. we got a lot of people here this weekend. Raise your hand if you're former staff at Snowbird for a summer or a season. That's awesome, man. It's good to have all of y'all. So good to have y'all. It's cool. Really cool. (laughs) Had two men come up to me at our recent Be Strong conference. First guy walks up to me, tears in his eyes. He's bawling. He's crying like a... And he's a big old dude. He's like a big man. He's about my height. He's 6'2", 6'3", probably 280. He's just like slobber crying, you know, like, why? why? like, I'm like, whoa, man, God's got a hold of this dude. I can't wait to hear what this is going to be, you know, and he starts telling, just pouring his heart out about how him and his wife were at their wits end. Their daughter was off the rails. They had lost her. They'd given up all hope, and somebody from the youth group talked her into coming to Snowbird one summer, and she got just radically saved, changed the whole dynamic of the family. She's now in her 20s, and he's like, man, we're we're in our church leading small groups, plugged in. Another dude, same conference at the Be Strong Conference. A man came up to me or right after I preached. I walked down here, and a guy comes up to me and says, 2006, nobody in my family was in church. And my son came here, and right out here, one of the staff members prayed with him. He prayed to receive Christ. He became a Christian. He came back. He shared the gospel. Mom dad everybody goes to church over the next few months every one of them becomes a christian gets saved radically gloriously saved by the gospel and now dad's like a sunday school teacher mom's a small group leader working with the youth stories like that just like i could sit here boy i'd get excited just roll them off for about five hours it never gets old like it never gets old and so i wish i wish you'd come back and see it in action it's pretty cool to see and uh also, there's a, we, uh, there's a, uh, an incredible group of people in the area that that meet here. It's a church called Red Oak Church, and um, you, you can a lot of you are interested in, in our media content. And Red Oak is another really good podcast resource. Awesome group of people. The majority of Red Oak members are non-Snowbird employees, so it's a large. It, it was the church was started several years ago by a group of Snowbird people, but it's cool. God's using that church. Incredible people and um but that's another resource for you so anyway turn to genesis 2 let's pick up where we left off now after examining my uh notes and and this good commentary i told you about i was going to show it to you but i lost the cover <laughs> i pulled the covers off a lot of it but it's called creation and blessing a lot of you asked about the exegetical commentary I was using for uh, stuff here um, this weekend. This is my favorite Genesis commentary when it comes to exegetical work, which is like just the hard work of drilling into what is the main point of the passage. What is God meaning to say? There are other commentaries that will explain application to us a little better, or a little easier flow, like of a preaching-style commentary. But when it comes to just exegetical good faith, and it's, and it's like cavemen can understand this. All right, Like, I am not... I'm not a deep, deep thinker. I need practical. And so it's super practical. So um, Alan Ross is the guy's name. Creation and blessing. If you want a good commentary on Genesis, I'm going to read an excerpt from that tonight. So I brought it in here with me. Um, I think I am. Yeah, I am. I think. I think. Anyway. um, So in the fall, um, I'm going to just pick this up. uh, The work that I'm doing in this commentary, my portion of the teaching at the fall marriage retreat, will pick up where we leave off in this. But we're going to, we're going to, Step into Genesis three. We're going to read a little bit in Genesis three. Then we're going to come back into two where we were this morning and look at six biblical characteristics of marriage from that text this morning. That if they are fastened to the marriage or if the marriage is fastened to these biblical characteristics, then what happens in Genesis three will not happen. And so we can apply that to our marriage and say, What happened in Genesis three was the marriage, the, the relationship unraveled, there was a loss of trust there was abuse of power, there was a neglect of responsibility, there was temptation, there was a failure to do the things that God called the man and the woman to do. So as a result, the enemy comes in, y'all know what the enemy wants to do, he wants to rob, he wants to steal, he wants to destroy, he wants to kill, he wants to do whatever he can to disrupt what God's done. Doesn't care how he gets there, he just wants to disrupt what God's doing. So he comes in and he creates chaos and uh and so the focus of the weekend, the teaching focus of the weekend is, is the gospel-centered marriage. So we want to attempt to take what, and Gar did this last night uh, when he we went back into the back part, of the second part of Genesis 3, we're going to say what we saw this morning, what we saw tonight, tie it all up, these characteristics of marriage, and see how Christ through the gospel displays all of them and then empowers us to, to, to live and exist with these six characteristics. Uh, and I hope it will be super practical. So before we get into it, I want to give you six things. This is separate. This is six free things, all right? Um, six things that I think are important for you to understand that, that you cannot do for your spouse that you cannot do in your spouse. So before we get into the text, these are just like, it's kind of like marriage coaching, okay? Six things, that, and this is, this is from the experience of watching people try to do this in their marriages, and I'm telling you, it will not work, okay? Six things that if we can learn Uh, Number one, you cannot force yourself into your spouse's conscience. You cannot force yourself into your spouse's conscience. In other words, you cannot convict him or her of sin. Only Jesus can do that. So an example would be a young couple, wanted to get married. Uh, I I was doing a premarital counseling. I said, you're not ready to get married. I will not marry you. They went to another pastor. The two nights before they got married, I begged them not to get married. They got married anyway. A year into it, for a number of reasons, they weren't ready. I don't care if the wedding has to get called off the day of. If we can get some things in place first, it's worth waiting for. Okay, so got them. They got married, and so now we're for you. We're going to fight for you. Marriage unravels. She has an affair. Has a boyfriend. Moves to another state. I remember it was a constant fight to try to bring her home. This this dude was faithful for two years. He prayed for his wife. He fought for his wife. He went after her. She had a boyfriend. I was like, "Have you whooped his hind end?" He's like, "No, he's I don't know." I'm like, "You should start there, and then we'll work back." Okay, like (laughs) that's a good starting point. Don't kill him. Don't shoot him. Nothing like that. Just give him a good thumping, and then we can work back from there. Amen, fellas. All right, amen. So like, (laughs) so anyway, they're working through this thing, and she. But he, what it came down to was, he kept saying, "I want to love her the way Christ loves the church," and all. All analogies or illustrations when it comes to me comparing myself to Christ, I'm, I'm going to fall short to some degree. So like in the analogy of Christ in the church, God's given us something glorious to, to see what we're working towards. But then also, you got to be careful here. There's a healthy understanding that there's certain things that I, I'm not capable of. I don't have the spirit of, of me that's holy that I can put in my spouse and fix what's broken in her or convict her or whatever so you can't do that the spirit of god's got to do that and we saw last night in first corinthians seven practical application for how like how you just live out your own sanctification trust in the lord number two you cannot personally change your spouse you can't change them if you can make them change just to appease you then that's not genuine change anyway it probably won't last so you can't change them and the, the thing is uh, i've seen this uh, another married couple that are now um, split up and have gone their separate ways. It was the most frustrating thing because um, they were going to get married. We encouraged them not to get married. Don't think you're he. This dude's crazy, and you think and it's very sexy and appealing and romantic. This idea of marrying this crazy highwayman type guy, lunatic. This dude's crazy. He's going to end up in the White House or in prison. Okay, like there's no no in between. He's going to go in some extreme direction. He's going to change the world one way. the And but if he's on fire for Jesus. He might take the gospel to an unreached people group in some remote place. Who knows? And she's like from a suburban community in a really affluent city. And she's like, no, that's the life I want. Well, it was like, uh, I don't think like, I don't think. So she married him and then immediately set about trying to change him and can't do that. Can't do that. Right. So uh, now that's tricky because I do need to be constantly changing. Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm changing from one degree of glory to the next. One degree, for, uh, like Paul's writing to the Corinthians, first uh, Corinthians three, he's like first, Corinthians three, he's like God's changing us literally, like from one degree of glory to the next. There's this constant, ongoing work of sanctification. But I don't get to take that person and take their idiosyncrasies and the things that are more like my opinions and my demands and shape them to that. It doesn't work that way. You can't make him number three. You can't make him or her understand you perfectly, and you cannot understand him or her perfectly. You're not going to ever understand that person perfectly. You're going to, how many of you, like 20, 30 years into marriage, sometimes you scratch your head and go, I don't get him. I do not understand that dude. What in the world? Right. Yep. Well, good luck. It's not going to change. Not in this life. All right. So we will have perfect knowledge one day. But Jesus understands him. Jesus knows everything about him. Jesus gets it. Number four, you cannot change or enhance his or her desires, but Jesus can. Little touched on this in the, Q and A for those of you that were here is talking about when women will try to like change body image or become something to appeal to their husband. When if 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 that's the appeal that he needs, his heart's not in the right place anyway, and you're, it's a slippery slope. You'll never get there, and so um, you can't change or enhance his desires for you. But Jesus can change his desires for Christ. The most appealing thing in a person is their love for Jesus, man. When somebody loves Jesus and He's changing them and shaping them into Himself. That's going to draw other people to him. Number five, you can't fill whatever void exists in his or her life. In other words, you are not a functional savior for that person. You can't take the void that's in that person's life and fill it. And And he can't fill the void, she can't fill the void that's in your life. So a lot of marriages, I think, struggle because you're bringing an emptiness into that marriage, hoping that he'll fill your cup or she'll fill your tank up and like, like it doesn't work that way. Christ will fill it to overflowing. How many of us, especially maybe if you're in a second or third marriage and you can look back to that first marriage or maybe in your in, in marriage you're in now, you can look back to the early stages of it and you're like, yeah, probably what was happening, I was expecting him or her to do something for me that he or she wasn't capable of and it created frustration. and didn't work. It doesn't work that way. Number six, um, oh, the, um, so you cannot fill whatever void exists, but Jesus can. He's, he is that Savior in that person's life. Number six, you cannot heal the wounds that someone else inflicted. You cannot heal the wounds of past abuse. You're with somebody who was in a previous relationship where she was abused. You can't, you can't heal that completely. Now, Christ will use you in a great way to do that. And in the long run, a lot of times, he does use a spouse to heal the wounds of a spouse. Maybe it's a childhood wound or something like that. But Jesus is the healer, right? He's the great physician. He's got to do the healing sometimes he'll use us um, in each other. So, like, you're, you're not going to totally g- understand this other person. You're not going to totally get this other person. We don't have to because Jesus does. So it's about learning how to love this person the way Christ wants me to love this person. So, all right, so let's go, let's go to Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We left this story off last night. They're living the dream, man. They're in the garden hanging out, no need for clothes. Completely naked. Why? Completely unashamed. Zero, con, like, guilty conscience of anything. Like, zero shame ever being imposed. Like, complete comfort. You ever notice how a little baby, little toddler loves to run around naked, right? Ah, run around. No concept of shame or that I should cover myself. It's kind of this, in, like, like, lack of inhibition. Okay, so in the garden, you've got complete removal of shame, and everybody's having a good time. And they're eating good, and they're enjoying one another, and life is good. And then you get to verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. The serpent gets introduced, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so you've got this like probably the moment in history that we need to understand if anything else is ever going to make sense like nothing else in all of history will make sense if we don't understand what's going on in genesis chapter three because what you've got is people taking what god has ordained orchestrated given to them called beautiful called good and they're exchanging it for a lie and at its worst like at its worst point in romans one scripture says people take what the creator had given them and they exchange it for a lie and at the same time they suppress the truth and unrighteousness so they suppress the truth and take what god's given and exchange it for a lie and they say i don't want what god wants i want something else i want something better i want something more and so what you've got is at the end of chapter two the humans are unashamedly naked but the servant was the craftiest of all creatures that's in Verse 1, chapter 3. The serpent engaged the woman in discussion about the prohibition of God's word. That's in verses 1 through 3. And in that, the serpent first questioned the woman about God's commandment. That's what he does. He questions you. It's just why it's critical that you grow in your authoritative understanding of Scripture. Not that you'll ever have authority over the word of God, but that you have an understanding of of the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, that that is the authority in your life that overrules and overrides every other authority. The the authority of God's Word is greater than the authority of your emotion, your will, your understanding, your comprehension, your conscience, your uh, interpretation. Like the, The authority of God's Word borrows from no man. Our authority always borrows from something else. So, my authority whatever authority i have in my life borrows from the laws of man the laws of god somehow my created existence but it's never it's never an innate authority i'm not born with a natural authority okay the word of god has authority and so what satan does is he questions that authority to the woman the woman explains what god had said but in the process she makes several significant changes bethany mentioned this in one of her answers in the um the q a today here's what she she does in changing them Uh, first in verses two and the first part of three she disparages the privileges that God had given listen to this the woman said to the servant we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden so she's sort of disparaging God yeah I mean we got this but wouldn't it be nice if we had this other thing Number two, she adds to the prohibition in verse three. She says, God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. She adds to the prohibition. And then number three, she minimizes the penalty for disobedience. Now listen to this. This is very subtle, and you kind of got to get into the languages to see this. Okay, she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, listen to what God had said. Back over and I'm using a different Bible now. 17. 17. Okay, thanks. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God makes a, a, an authoritative declaration and a command. And if you could peel the, la- the language back a little bit, she's sort of going, I don't know, we will die. Lest, lest we die, whatever. That, that's sort of the attitude that she's got. So you've got this sort of cynicism towards the authority of God, and you, and you see that coming through. So she disparages the privileges God's given to her. She adds to the prohibition of God's word, and then she minimizes the penalty for disobedience. The serpent denies, then, the penalty for sin in verses 4 and 5, raising doubts about the integrity of God and giving of the commandment. First in verse four, he boldly denies the word of God, and then in verse five, he casts doubt on the integrity of God. Did God really say? Do you really think that God? Here's the problem: God's lying to you. We don't. You can't really trust God. God's—it's you know, just the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain. You know, like don't you can't trust that. And so then you get down to verse six, and when the woman concentrated on the forbidden tree with it. With its appeal to her senses, she disobeyed the Lord and ate from the tree and then gave it to her husband to eat in verse six. Now listen to this. <clears throat> in verse six, the appeal of the forbidden fruit to the senses was sufficient to draw the woman into sin. How so? Number one, it was practical. It's good for food. It wasn't poisonous. let not say it's poisonous. <laughs> She's convulsing and on her knees. Like, no, apparently it was really good for food. Like, oh, this tastes really it's like a pizza tree, you know, like it's just great (laughs) like you know think of your favorite fruit and i don't know what the fruit was think of your favorite fruit it's good fruit some fruit's nasty some fruit i don't like some people don't like texture any texture eaters some people like like dry heaving over texture i'm like texture eat sandpaper I eat snot i don't care like like if it's it's a little salt and pepper and deep fry it we can roll with it right we're talking texture (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) scratch that last comment but like, th- take your favorite fruit, like tonight, had that cheesecake, whoo, that was glorious. Strawberry sliced up, they were perfectly ripened. I'm sure the blueberry was just as good. Delicious, right? So take that fruit, eat that fruit. So she recognizes the pleasure that it's going to provide. There is there's, there's a practical pleasure, it's good for food. In the base existence of a human, there's a need to survive, and that survival instinct is i got to eat and if I can eat something that tastes good, that's better than eating something that tastes bad. And so it's practical; it's good. It's good for food. Um, number two, um, it was sufficient to draw the woman in aesthetically. It was pleasing to look at. Something there, there was a lot of there was a lot that was appealing to the eyes. And then number three, it was spiritual. It was this idea that it's going to make her wise. She's going to have some kind of wisdom. God's going to give her this wisdom that comes from eating this fruit, or or she's going to sort of leapfrog over the wisdom God's given her and have added wisdom as a result of eating this fruit. And the aftermath in verse 7 is that the man and the woman suffer the consequences of their disobedience, and that is namely, like, their knowledge of sin. And so what God ends up having to do, and we're going to cover this in the fall, but God has to remove them from the garden so they don't live forever in this eternal existence. And Can you imagine living in a fallen... St- like, the, like, as much as I dread dying, it's going to be awesome to live with no pain, no sin, no temptation no broken marriages, no addiction, nobody, like when the scripture say nobody's going to cry in heaven, it's going to be amazing, right? If you live to a ripe old age, it, it's, it's always really cool to see an older person that's like ready to go, you know, like, yeah, I want to go see some folks and, and see Jesus and talk to him like face to face and have this new restored perfect knowledge. It's going to be awesome. God's preparing us for something eternal and marriage works towards that. And so God takes them out of the garden so they don't live forever in this fallen state. Um, and so if we, if we, now, what I want to do, if we can take the, the like what we saw this morning in chapter 2 and say, okay, here's what God laid out for them, and the wheels came off within one chapter. What went wrong? And it's these six characteristics that we need to work towards. If we can work towards these six characteristics in biblical marriage, going back in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 2. So if we go back to chapter 2, verse 15, we work through verse 22, and I'm pulling this. This is cool. I talked this morning about marriage. Ceremonies, and I love to do marriages. I'm pulling this from the, uh, the, the wedding message of Adam and Maury Garner. You here, Billy? You up there? Yeah. This is straight. I'm going I'm pre- I'm to preach your sermon, all right? This is it. It was like a 13-minute t- a wedding sermon that I did. So I'm going to pull those. This, these six main points came right out of that. And it's just so practical, and I want to share it with you tonight. Okay, so Genesis 2.15, first biblical character- characteristic of a marriage is work. Marriage is work. Marriage, work, 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 all the time, no days off, no days off from working, both in vocation, in life, and in relationship. God made the man for working and specifically for cultivating just as much as the ground requires cultivation in order to yield its seed. Even more so, relationships require cultivation. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, I grew up on the Pigeon River, not far from here, grew up right on the Pigeon River. And right behind my house was uh, Sammy Joe Henson and, and David Henson, their brothers, and they're tomato farmers. That's what they did for a living. They're full-time tomato farmers. Huge tomato fields, huge. And they irrigated of the Pigeon River. We ride our bikes down there. We go swimming in the Pigeon River, fishing in the Pigeon River, go tubing down there. And I remember, I remember one year, this would have been in the late 80s, there was a drought. And it absolutely, mid to late 80s, I don't remember the year now, but, man, it, it devastated those guys. It was like two years, two summers back-to-back back that their, their tomato crop got wiped out. And I remember it, it devastated that family, that business. Guys were having to, Those guys were having to go get jobs at the mill. We had a paper mill in Canton there in Canton, North Carolina. You go get jobs at the mill. It was a big deal. All right, so um, when me and Little got married... She's got a green thumb, and I, I grew up with, in a house where there was a garden, and I hated working in the garden. I didn't want to work in the garden when I was a little kid. I was so, it was so glorious. By the time I was about middle school, my mama and daddy quit having a garden, and that was great. I didn't want to string no beans, you know. I didn't snap people like, hey, I got to go out and work in my garden. Not me. I got this thing called Ingles right down there. You can buy canned green beans, dirt cheap. They don't taste the same. They go into my belly, and they do all I need them to do. I ain't trying to snap no beans all evening every day. Now, some of you love it. And it's awesome. Little loves it. Snapping beans, shucking corn. I'm like, Ingles. All right, so I remember I got married. Little's like, I'm going to grow me some plants. So she's out there. She's putting stuff out. She's making stuff grow. Put some tomatoes out. Every Boy, I love it. First thing is fried green tomatoes. Some things get green and plump and firm. Start pulling them, slicing them up, fried green tomatoes. Amen? Can I get a witness? Any Baptist folks in the building? All right, that's good. All right, the rest of you, you know what I'm talking about. You got to try it. Okay, then they turn more ripe and they get plump and juicy. Then it's time for BLTs or straight up tomato sandwiches, right? Praise the Lord. That's all you need. White bread, it is, it is an absolute abomination to eat any bread that is not white bread. Enriched, there's a reason they use that word. It is wealthy in taste, all right? It's gooey. It sticks to the roof of your mouth. People are living longer than they've ever lived. Don't buy the lie that white bread and whole milk are bad for you. That is a lie. All right, so Oh, just, mm, thank you, Lord. BLTs and tomato sandwiches, all right? Then about the seventh or eighth summer, a black got little tomatoes. And I remember I was like, oh, no. She broke the news to me. And then we just went on with life and bought our tomatoes at Darlene's Produce downtown. It wasn't no big deal. We still had tomato sandwiches. We still had fragrant tomatoes. We still had... BLT, it wasn't a big deal. We weren't talking about a way of life. We were sort of enjoying some fruit from some labor, but it wasn't disrupting our lives. Where When the tomatoes went down at the Henson Farm, it devastated three generations of of welfare and well-being. Okay, When you talk about cultivation and marriage, too many people approach marriage as if to cultivate a plant in the backyard when literally this is fields and fields and fields of cultivation that literally... Generations depend on like the legacy of your marriage requires work and cultivation It we're not playing at this. We're not playing house, right? This is this is hard work So a lot of cultivation. So he says in genesis two fifteen, you gotta work in the garden. You gotta work number two protection and We worked through all these briefly this morning Um, but we didn't elaborate on them number two protection the idea of protecting one another's needs is more spiritual-focused than physical. So physically, yes. Spiritually, more so. Protecting one another spiritually. While it's true that in many cultures in society and history, there was a strong and demanding need for physical protection from elements or invading armies, in our culture, the greatest attacks will certainly be spiritual. Right? Like I don't have to worry about really an invading army coming against my family, but there's certainly a spiritual darkness that wants to en- envelop our homes and our marriages and, and, and wreak havoc and do damage. Men failed to lead and protect the assets of the home and the relationships in the home, and the effects looked like that of the garden. In the garden, the ultimate threat, threat came in the form of seduction and beauty. It wasn't a raging lunatic. talked to a lady the other night, had a long conversation, a little I with some really good friends of ours. And she, I, we knew she had been abducted a few years ago in a kidnapping, an in-home kidnapping. And we're like, this is in 2015. So the other night, we're talking to her. We're like, tell us the story. And she said, well, I went over to my mom. She was a caregiver for her mother, who was an elderly lady. Goes into her mother's house, and her mother's tied up in the corner. Some people are robbing her. Some guys are robbing her. And She sees her mom, and she had come in on them. They weren't expecting her to come home. So they physically assaulted her, sort of beat her, roughed her up a little bit, tied her up, and took what they wanted, took ATM cards, stuff like that. Anyway, robbed her. Um, I think it was about a four-hour ordeal. And we're talking about that, and I thought, you know, she was saying how after that, for the next year, she was so diligent about dead bolts on doors and looking everywhere before she got out of the car, just like this, you know, enhanced this, this vigilance. And I thought, man, that's, that's a good picture of how, like, the, like where we live spiritually. The enemy is lurking around every corner, and he's going to attack, and he's going to pillage, and he's going to tie up and bind and rob and destroy. And so there's a need for diligence. And what happens a lot of times is after we've encountered the enemy in the, much the way that she did physically, but we've encountered it spiritually where uh, a spouse is unfaithful, a child goes off the rails, you find out about someone in your house has an addiction, whatever. Uh, and, and so then you start trying to figure out how to put the pieces together. If we can be diligent and vigilant at all times, recognizing that we're, we're working against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We've got to be ready and guarded. And what are we protecting? We're protecting the work of sanctification in each other. Sanctification is the work of Jesus molding and shaping you more into himself. So just to make sure I'm defining terms. So every Christian is in, is being sanctified. That process is called sanctification. The The root wording there is basically has to do with being set apart for God's work and holiness. Okay, so your spouse is being sanctified. We've drawn this from Ephesians 5, which we preached on extensively um, at the 2018 fall conference. And you can go listen to those sermons and teachings. But your your spouse's sanctification, their their process of daily, 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 daily becoming more like Jesus. That's your number one priority. It's your number one priority. And you gotta fight to protect that. You gotta protect it. Number three. Get down to verse uh verses twenty-one and twenty-two. Sacrifice. Characteristic of biblical marriage, sacrifice. Look in verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man's body is broken and his blood is shed in the forging of the first marriage. At the cross, Jesus is giving up his own life for his bride, the church. His body is broken and he dies shedding his blood for things he was innocent of, but he did this out of love and compassion for us and obedience to the Father. Adam is asleep. God opens his body up and and Adam's self-sacrifice is a part of the forging of the first marriage. So the... Literally the shedding of the man's blood will foreshadow the work that Jesus will do And so biblical characteristic of marriage is sacrifice that points us and reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus number four grace fourth characteristic of biblical marriage is grace the grace we are to extend to each other is seen most clearly in the way jesus gives us grace at the cross of christ god makes a way for us to receive forgiveness and peace rather than bitterness and resentment all of our past sins all of our present sins and all of our future sins laid on christ and in return we get love and forgiveness if we can love each other that way it's so free and uh it's, i don't think you can emphasize enough how critical it is that we're trying to remove shame and guilt from one another rather than heap it up on one another. And what happens in a lot of marriages is <laughs> a strike. I've got to hurt her worse. <laughs> Maybe not physically. Maybe not physically. Never ever have struck my wife physically. Um, never even lifted a pinky, you know. Except this one time we were wrestling and, uh, <laughs> and I thought it was my brother behind me and we're just piling on each other and everybody's piling on we're wrestling, pillow fighting. And I reached back here I was going to grab my 260 pound brother and I hooked Little right under the thigh and like this and I threw her about three flips across the room. <laughs> it was awesome. But <laughs> she was like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? I was like, I'm so sorry. Then we're laughing. We couldn't stop. But anyway, like, but I'm talking about strike with your words. Strike with no words. I saw this a lot in my house where the husband just goes shuts down to this day i'll talk to my mom and she'll be like oh man the silent treatment was hard hard just days on end i can remember as a teenager several times where there would be like two or three straight days where not a word would be spoken and then things would sort of sort themselves out and then okay and it would kind of get back to normal and i never i never thought anything about that until my my own mother years later i was like tell me tell me because her marriage didn't last and I'm like tell me help me know help me you know like be a better husband and so we had long conversations not long after I got married and one of the things I remember her saying is just like communicate just talk and communicate and be clear and so and doing that heap and extend grace so I'm communicating grace and forgiveness and I'm long suffering and man it can be so powerful when you feel the alleviation of of your own guilt from this spouse you know think about you know that one of the things the scripture teaches is that jesus takes our sin that we've committed so your sin he takes that sin and he puts it under his blood i don't care if you murdered somebody i don't care if you or, you know if you sold dope drugs crack cocaine meth whatever i don't care if you are a or used to be a wife beater jesus will transform and put that under the blood like there's not a sin that's greater than the power of the gospel okay so so i receive that but then what a lot of us will do is we'll sort of be working through that but we'll forget to work through the self-condemnation and self-guilt and self-shame well i did this and i remember when i was that or this was done to me oftentimes the guilt and shame comes from abuse that you received as a child Oftentimes it comes from things that you've done you can't forgive yourself for and the gospel the bible teaches us the gospel of jesus Removes that shame and guilt too when jesus was dying He wasn't just dying for the sin you and I would commit He was dying to free us from the guilt and shame associated with that sin as well as other people's sin like to set us free and say you have a new identity You have a new home you have citizenship in a kingdom that's greater than this kingdom and so you're gonna be fine And so the way that we flesh that out is extending grace to one another. Grace upon grace upon grace. So I extend grace to my spouse. Now, Rob did a good job this morning saying, like, if if you got a problem, this would primarily go for the men. But if you're a dude that, like, you've gone down that path couple of things you need to understand, if you, like you may need some counseling, you may need some good pastoral counseling, some good marriage counseling. I ain't talking about no Cracker Jack box counseling, like we'll help you get some stuff, all right? Some people that can help you start to unpack that and work through that. The other thing is, you may have done damage that in your mind you've put it in the past and moved on, but maybe your spouse is still trying to work through that. Maybe she's not quite ready to move on. So you might need to work through that and might need some counseling, might need some help. And so we want to learn how to extend grace to one another because the gospel says that Jesus is is like extending grace to us. That's what he's doing at the cross. Number five, fifth biblical characteristic of marriage is abandonment, abandonment. In a marriage relationship, there is an abandonment of all other relationships. We are forsaking all others. We leave our families to start a new one, thus expanding the families we came from. We leave all other loves to devote our lives to this one love that grows from the love of Jesus. So, like, there are certain things that are reserved and preserved for an exclusive relationship between husband and wife. Like, there's, there are things other than just sexual things. There are emotional things, um, verbal things that are to be reserved for that one relationship. And so, it's, it is the relationship of abandonment. I've abandoned all other relationships, including my mama. Some, sometimes that's a problem, like... Need to move away from your one of y'all's mama, like you know, to another state or something. Well, I'm so thankful. When me and little got married, we lived about five hours from my mama and seven hours from her mama. That was good for us. For three or four years, it was like that. It was good for us. And I'm not saying you have to do that. That's not like a rule. But I'm saying there is a very clear severing of ties and a breaking away um, to start a new family. So there's abandonment in the in that sense and an abandonment of all the relationships. And last number six. Uh, the sixth characteristic of biblical marriage is submission. The man is to submit to Christ, the woman is to submit to the man. And here's the key to submission sanctification. When both the husband and wife are carrying out their biblical roles and responsibilities in the marriage, God is glorified, and the two are becoming more and more like Jesus in the process. So, as each of you are submitting to Christ, submission will be very biblical and healthy and beautiful. We've often described it here as it won't look like submission, it's not abusive. It's not controlling. It's powerful. All you're doing is each of you are submitting to Christ. And when you both submit to Christ, everything else lines up. Submit to Jesus. Don't, like, people try to figure out, how do I submit to my husband? How do I get my wife to submit to me? No, no. You submit to Christ. I'll submit to Christ. Everything else will fall in place. Everything, literally. It's like, whoop. You ever go to the chiropractor? I don't go anymore. I got a 13-year-old daughter that can walk on my back, crack that sucker six times every evening when I get home this, this evening. Lately, I lay down on my face. She go, pow, pow, crack, crack, pop, pop, pop. Last time I went to the chiropractor, he got it to crack like twice. I was like, nah, dude, you're a lightweight. You went to all that school, spent all that money. I got a daughter that's like, whoo, she like Aisha up there walking on her heels, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> pow, 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 pow. like, what's happening? Everything's lining up. Everything's like this, and it's like... And it lines up, okay? I submit to Christ, you submit to Christ, everything lines up like it's supposed to. That's the big picture. When I mean, you break submission down a thousand ways, but that's the big idea, submission. Everybody's submitting to Jesus. And, and, and I think if I, if I can get these six things in view, then what happens is those six things in chapter two will keep me from what happens in chapter three, which is the enemy creeps in, lies get told. I start to believe those lies. I start to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then the unraveling begins, which leads to accusation, shifting of blame, bitterness and resentment, holding of grudges, blaming of God, fleeing from my own intimacy with the Lord, covering my own sin. all the compounded issues of Genesis 3 would have not happened if those six characteristics of that first biblical marriage would have been intact. So give us something to work towards. And, and what's our ultimate example of all these things? Every single one of these things is personified, exemplified, and exalted in the carrying out of the gospel. So when I study Ephesians 5 and look at how Christ loved the church, and I study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, boom, 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 study through the gospels and just watch what Jesus did, how he loved his people, how he, how he fulfilled and carried out the will of the Father. That's my example of what it is to be a godly man, a godly woman in marriage, to love like Christ loves. Amen. So I'm going to pray. You respond however you want to. We're not going to do like a, uh, an invitation or anything like that. We'll say this. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're here. Maybe your wife or husband dragged you here. Or maybe you just said, let's try it and we'll see what this is like. And you're, right now you're thinking, oh, my goodness. What in the world if we come into your head it might be spinning. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, none of this is going to make sense. And it's, you're going to have issues with it working. So it starts with surrendering to Christ as your Lord and Savior calling on the name of the Lord to be saved and receiving the gospel. And so any number of us would be glad to talk with you about that after the service. But we're going to close by singing um, some songs of worship tonight and worship together as husbands, wives, friends, brothers, sisters. And uh, so I'll pray for us and then we'll sing. Lord, we lift your name on high. We exalt it as a name that is above every other name. Exalt it as the name that at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you're Lord. I pray that our marriages would reflect that. I pray that we'd love you well, love one another well. Uh, pray that if there are needs that, uh, that only you can meet, that we've looked to our spouse to have met, that you would open our eyes to that. I pray that if there are past offenses and grievances that we need to repent of and turn in repentance, that we'd do that, Lord. These guys have heard a lot over the last 24 hours. But that Q&A today was so weighty and heavy and the content was so confrontational in a good way. You know, most of us have got things we need to sort out and work through. And, um, God, but tonight I pray we just see the beauty of marriage as you've laid it out for us and we'd see what we have as an opportunity to strive towards and work towards. Please help us, Lord to be the husbands and wives you want us to be. And uh and we we'll give you glory for everything that goes on. I pray that that others would benefit from our obedience in that area. And right now we worship you by singing to you and responding to your word that way because you're worthy of it in Jesus name. Amen.